0: Welcome to another episode of Nourish, Eat, Repeat. Today we have a very special guest that I am so excited to bring to you. Um, I already spoke to him during our intro when we were getting to know each other a little bit and told him, I'm gonna fangirl over you a little bit because I am so excited that you are here today. So hopefully my enthusiasm, I can pare down a bit but I can't help for it if if I get too excited. Dr. Kenneth Brown is a top gastroenterologist in Plano, Texas, and the host of the Gut Check Project podcast. As a traditionally trained medical doctor, he has begun transitioning to more of a functional gastroenterologist. Bridging the gap between traditional medicine and natural solutions affords him the ability to critically analyze research that is both industry-sponsored and cutting-edge natural research that few people are aware of. After attending meetings, both in a gastroenterology setting and in the functional medicine side, he is in a very unique position to be one of the only gastroenterologists embracing the science of natural solutions. Have you heard the news? We started a brand new membership program called My Nutrition Coach, and you're invited to join. At Body Metrics, most of our clients come to us through their medical health insurance plan. Unfortunately, most insurances don't offer enough sessions to see big results. And some plans, they don't cover nutrition services at all. At Body Metrics, we are passionate about helping our clients see results and making nutrition accessible to everyone. That's why we created My Nutrition Coach, a program that offers education and accountability between one-on-one sessions and an affordable option for those without coverage. Inside the membership, you'll get access to weekly teachings, nutrition-focused goals to work on, recipes, a private community page for support, a video resource library, and an opportunity to ask questions to a real dietitian. This helpful program is available right now for only $9.99 a month, or $99 if you sign up annually. But it's important to us to make sure we're a good fit for you. So we're offering a special 30-day free trial if you sign up now. To start your free 30-day trial, simply go to BodyMetricsHealth.com and click on the Programs tab. There, you will see my nutrition coach. Simply click for more information and to join. We can't wait to see you inside the membership. Dr. Brown, welcome to the podcast.
1: Adrian, it is my honor to be on the Nourish Eat Repeat podcast, and congratulations on all the success that you've been having.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah, it is just every day I want to just say pinch myself because I don't believe that this is my life. I get to help people do something I'm extremely passionate about, so I feel very humbled and blessed.
1: You get to help people do that while working with your husband and sharing the beliefs with all your patients. That's fantastic.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would like to say that I was first introduced to your podcast when we set up this appointment and how much I am just thankful for the work that you are doing in showing people another way and creating space for asking better questions and really listening to people and figuring out how can we help them as a person instead of just another patient. So, So thank you for what you're doing
1: it's definitely a a growth process and continuing to grow constantly because we keep learning new things and so it's really exciting in my field to feel like i'm just beginning my career even though i'm i'm too many years into it to even say on this podcast but
0: <laughs> yeah we don't share our ages on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> we're all still 20 yes so i would love to start with just learning a little bit more about you and and how you decided to move from you know, the classic gastroenterology, uh, I guess we'll call it platform and moving over to functional medicine.
1: So this all, I'm a traditionally trained gastroenterologist and this all began uh, probably 17 years ago. I started the first research division in my company in the large gastroenterology group. And during that time, I was doing pharmaceutical research. And so I had the ability to see how the pharmaceutical companies would address these different problems, how they were bringing drugs to market, how they were setting up the studies, how much it was costing, how each the inclusion and exclusion criteria was so strict that it afforded me the ability to look at something where it's like, wow, a lot of these drugs coming to market are just slightly better than placebo. And this is in a perfect setting where they are seeing in a research coordinator, you know, on a biweekly, you know, maybe even more than that all the time. And so looking at this, the drugs that they're using, we're seeing the side effects, we're having the dropouts and it was, you know, living in a glass house. I mean, you know, I was being financially compensated for this, so it was something very interesting and exciting for me to do. But then we got into a field that I'm very interested in and I did the first original studies on a drug called Zyfaxan which is a non-absorbable antibiotic. And it was at that time that a doctor from California, Dr. Pimentel, Dr. Mark Pimentel had this really novel research where he was demonstrating that irritable bowel syndrome or IBS is not in your head, but it's actually a process that's happening in the gut where it comes down to bacteria. And I say not in your head because I was literally trained that if somebody comes in and they're bloated, have diarrhea, have constipation, that... If you do the workup and it's negative, meaning an endoscopy, colonoscopy, and blood work, then you just tell the patient, good news, it's just irritable bowel syndrome. Take this antidepressant. And that was the era that I was trained in. And here, this is a really novel concept, a completely paradigm shift. It's the same shift that took place 40 years ago when they used to think that ulcers were caused by stress, and then they discovered it was due to a bacteria. So it's very similar to that same path during that period that really opened my eyes that there could be a lot of different ways to look at things. And it's not necessarily waiting for a drug company to come into my office and explain to me how to treat somebody because I'm on the one side seeing how, when they come up with a drug idea, they have to make it fit. And I'm not waiting for novel ideas coming from that sort of that area. This particular study opened my eyes that we could be open to more. And it was then that we realized we were only able to help a small subclass of people that had this IBS with diarrhea. But the IBS bloated and constipated person, there was nothing available. And started thinking, well, there has to be something for this, now that we know a new process, is there something else out there? And that's when I started researching and looking at natural products to see if we could fix some of this. And I was able to come up with a product called Atrontil, which uses these complex polyphenols to do it. And it just opened my eyes. I'm like, wait a minute, we're seeing way better results than all these pharmacologic agents. We're helping people and the side effects are actually beneficial for your health, beneficial for your microbiome, not disruptive. And so that is when I really just started going, wow, we really need to start looking at natural products and start thinking. And then I started seeing the success in my patients where if we healed their digestive tract, then everything else got better. Many things got better. So that's where it started. And then it kind of had this, you need to go all in on this, when about eight years ago, a mother brought her 18-year-old son, I'm an adult doctor, and when he graduated out of pediatric gastroenterology, she brought him to me. He had severe autism, had had autism his whole life, but over the past several years, He was regressing significantly. And she brought him to me because she said that every time he eats, he was nonverbal. Every time he eats, he would really act out. And he was to the point where he was becoming a young man at 18, physically developed and was becoming very hard to control. And she couldn't leave him with anybody else. So she had to quit her job, spend full time with him, and just thought as a long shot, maybe there's something in his gut that is affecting his behavior. And when I listened to him and felt his belly, it was very tympanic, meaning that there was just a lot of air in there. And then it made sense that the thing that I had been researching, this could be the exact same process going on, where he's got bacteria. He's got dysbiosis, meaning he's got more bad bacteria than good bacteria and probably has bacteria growing where it shouldn't be. So I treated him like we would normally do for this. And Used natural products and also pharmacologic agents, the zifaxin, and she brought him back three months later, and she was essentially crying out of happiness. And this nonverbal person is now eating more food. He was gentle and kind and talking. I mean, not, you know, a ton, but but he was verbal. And she said, "This is the best he's been in like ten years." And I went, "Okay, this is this is now a life mission here. We have to figure out how." We need to heal the gut to help other things like the brain. In this particular case, it was that. So that's really what the passion has been is that we need to just keep down this same path. That was the sort of the moral obligation to continue going that route. And so we all have, and I'm sure you do also, when you take care of people, you have these incredible life-changing things that you can do for people. And when they come back and go, it worked, I'm so much better without you Adrian, I would be, name it, you know, I would be eating junk food. I would be overweight. I would be all these other things. And it changes the course of their life. And so that's kind of what that was. We all have a few cases that we remember constantly that say, okay, when I'm getting tired and it's a little bit frustrating, just remember the greater goal here. So that's really how I started getting into the more functional space. And of course that went from, you know, just treating the gut to, well, let's talk diet and let's talk all these other aspects and lifestyle and the usual foundation things. And that was pretty much the crux of it. That once I got into it, I realized, well, there's this whole other community that is like-minded and trying to do this, but you never hear about it as a traditional doctor. So when I would talk to my colleagues and I would discuss a few of these things, the answer I always got was there's no science on it, but there is so much science. There's so much research going on. And when I started thinking about it, is it that there's there's no science or is it that a drug rep is not showing up and giving you a detailed piece to explain what's going on? That is wonderful to see that this functional movement just continues to gain traction. And certainly the patients are demanding it now. Patients are showing up going, I was listening to the Eat, Nourish, Repeat podcast and I heard this. What are your thoughts on that? And I just love that.
0: Yeah. Well, I think like you said, for so long, it was kind of us versus them. If you went the medical route, then this is what you believe in and only this. And this is takes priority over any other way of thinking, right? And now all of a sudden, like we're asking better questions. Well, well, hold on a second. What results are you getting? And and I don't think it has to be an either or. We can get the best from both sides of medicine to help the client. I mean, that's ultimately why you and I both do what we do, to help a person. And whether that can be through traditional medicine, whether that can be through natural sources. Um, But I think when I went to school, I felt for so long, you have to pick a lane. What are you going to do? Are you going to be a functional dietitian or are you going to be a clinical dietitian? Because you can't do both. And finally, we're having conversations of, well, what could this look like? So I know I'm appreciative of, of this.
1: One thing that was eye-opening for me as well is the um, physicians and patients in other countries were much more receptive to this kind of discussion. And I think it's because in other countries, the, the medicine machine or the thing that needs to keep going, right here in the United States, we are almost dependent on chronic disease to keep the pharmaceutical industry going, to keep hospital industries going, uh, to keep the big food industry going. The chronic disease generates so much income for all these different industries and other countries are trying really hard because they've got, you know, basically you call it socialized medicine or whatever. It's really important to try and keep those costs down. And So they start thinking about how do we prevent it as opposed to how do we treat it?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's, I, we have had... Lots of it was very shocking to see physicians in other countries contacting me early on from Australia, New Zealand, Europe, Germany, and I'm like, "Wow, you guys are hearing about this," and I can't get, you know, my partner down the hall to even listen to me.
0: <laughs> yeah, I heard this this phrase and I love it. I want to steal it, but it's you know going to the pharmacy, F A R N A C instead of P H A R N A C Y. So, you know, what do we have in our backyards? What do we have at our disposal that can give just as good results without all the adverse side effects?
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. And that's, that's a whole separate discussion because I'm a huge believer that it all health begins and ends in the gut and nutrition is probably the crux of the most important thing about it. Everything else beyond that, if you don't have the right nutrition, right sleep habits, so on, then everything else is, you know, you're kind of running uphill the whole time.
0: Yeah. So I actually want to talk a little bit more about that in terms of gut health. So I feel like that word gets thrown around a lot, but not everybody knows what that means. I've, I'll have patients that come in like I want better gut health and it's usually the ones that are struggling, right? Um but what does gut health mean? You also said the word microbiome. So maybe we can just talk a little bit more um you know, whether how scientific you want to get or if you want to talk to me like I'm 4, either way, like What does that mean? So we can fully understand the importance of, of why nutrition is, is the crux.
1: So the most important thing is it all comes down to inflammation. Inflammation is the root cause of disease. And we're seeing study after study now coming out that chronic illnesses that are epidemic, like let's just take Alzheimer's dementia, a new study or Something just got published by the American Alzheimer's Association, stating that people with constipation tend to have worse cognition. And the association with that is, okay. well, is is it the constipation or is it the thing that's causing the constipation? So you start working your way back and you realize that if we can have a healthy microbiome, so the microbiome are all the organisms that live in us. And you and I are 99% genetically identical, but you and I may have 90% different microbial genes and they produce more genes than we do, like a hundredfold more. So gut health begins with the microbiome. Cause if you don't have a healthy microbiome, then it's very hard to take advantage of the food that you eat. What I mean by that is if you have microbial diversity, and you eat foods that are whole foods, that have lots of polyphenols, that have lots of fiber. If you have been eating a very poor diet this whole time, your microbiome adjusts to what you're feeding it. So I have a lot of people, and I'm sure you do too, that come January one, when they want to turn over a new leaf, they go, well, I've I switched my diet. I'm eating a pure Mediterranean or a plant-based or whatever you want to say. And they're like, I'm miserable. I felt better when I was eating the McDonald's every day. And what I tell them is, well, that's because your microbiome is not ready to accept this because you've narrowed it down. You need to continue down this path so that you improve those bacteria so that they can take advantage of it. I kind of tell my patients that it's, if you're doing all these things, so I have a lot of patients that'll take supplements and they'll do different things, but you're kind of wasting your time unless your body's ready to be able to take full advantage of that. And what that means is that when you have a healthy microbiome, And you eat, for instance, polyphenols are the science that I'm working with. Polyphenols are the molecules that make vegetables colorful. In fact, when we talk about why the Mediterranean diet is very healthy, it's because it's a higher proportion of polyphenols, meaning fruits and vegetables and good proteins, that the microbiome breaks down these large complex polyphenols into smaller phenolic compounds that then get broken down. And they produce these anti-inflammatory products that go throughout your body. One that commonly gets talked about are short-chain fatty acids or butyrate. So when you have good bacteria, what it will do is produce things like butyrate and other molecules that get real science-y like urolithin A and urolithin B. The, the science kind of drowns out how simple it is. It's just really simple because when you have a good microbiome, then these products are produced and it causes decreased inflammation throughout the body, including the gut, including the brain. And we see all these inflammatory markers decrease. When that decreases, we know that that's associated with decreased heart disease, decreased diabetes. People's skin clears up. There's decreased in, uh, neuroinflammation or brain inflammation. And so having the proper microbiome is the goal that everybody should have. And you should continue to always eat for your microbiome, live a life for your microbiome. One would argue there's so many more bacteria in our bodies. Do we live for them or do they live for us? What we do know is if you treat them bad, they treat you bad. It's think of it like a a lush forest versus just one type of grass in an area. Yes, you have bacteria there, but it doesn't do the complex stuff by having this really lush forage of just bacteria that can produce the beneficial things that you need. And when that starts happening, then you start decreasing inflammation throughout the body. So when people say they want to have a healthy gut, the ultimate goal, the end game is you need a healthy microbiome. And how do we achieve that? But it's not a it's not an overnight fix. It's a lifestyle it's a long-term thing, and you can disrupt the microbiome really easy by taking a round of antibiotics. You can disrupt it by having poor sleep patterns and all these other things. And then, of course, disrupt it by eating poorly, meaning when you have a lot of processed foods and you know the industrial seed oils and lots of sugar. What people don't realize is that when you eat like that, you're training your microbiome to send signals to your brain because you're self-selecting bacteria that send a signal to your brain that they want more of that Mm -hmm. so when people have sugar cravings and things like that a lot of that could be that you've got a bunch of bacteria going hey I want that I want that Big Mac I love that stuff because you have not you know grown your microbiome enough so the healthy gut is saying I want a healthy gut I think okay well first we need to start working towards a healthy microbiome and how do you do that Like, you know, whole foods, let's cut out the processed stuff. Let's try to really decrease inflammatory things. Let's not do things to disrupt that. As long as you start doing that, then you start working your way away from the microbiome to where you start digesting the food. So a healthy gut, also you can have inflammation where you start digesting the food, the small bowel. And if you're eating those inflammatory foods, they can start causing inflammation early on, that inflammatory process causes the same problems, but that's why you need a healthy microbiome to decrease that whole action. My research is in bacterial overgrowth or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO. We know that if you have bacteria growing where it shouldn't and you start feeding that, then that bacteria produces all this inflammation up high. And so Mm -hmm. it's such a common thing for people to have bloating that they put up with it. And I always tell everybody, Bloating is like the canary in the mine shaft. That could be the very first sign that you do not have a healthy gut and you have an inflamed gut. And if we let that keep going in the short term, we know that that creates inflammation. In the long term, we know that that creates chronic disease. So the, the concept of I want a healthy gut is a lifelong plan. It's like saying, I want to get in shape. Okay, you can't go out and... Try to jog one day and call it good. It's building your way up and getting there. So it's a constant process. And then it becomes a lifestyle. And then you think, okay, well, I don't want to eat this because it'll make me fat. Think differently. I don't want to eat this because what's it going to do to my microbiome? My son had a great idea. So last year during colon cancer awareness, all the colonoscopies that I did, I got a little bracelet that said W-W-Y-M-S. What would your microbiome say? So I tell my patients, look, we just did a colonoscopy on you. I cut out a bunch of polyps. You're going to go out and eat. I want you to wear this bracelet. Next time you're in line at a fast food restaurant and you're waiting, look down at your wrist and go, what would my microbiome say? What would your microbiome say when you order your Big Mac and Coke and all this other stuff? So, yeah,
0: I like that visual. Um, Well, I always tell my clients too, like, I want you to think back to your microbiology days, which I always get an eye roll because nobody remembers their microbiology (laughs) days. But you know, you think about a bacteria, its main purpose in life is to grow and divide. And so if you're feeding those unhealthy bacteria, and you're mass producing them and multiplying them and, and they're taking over in your gut, you don't got the good healthy stuff to protect you as much. And so now you're opening yourself up to illness. And, you know, there, we always see a direct correlation between people that don't eat healthy and picking up more colds and flu and, and, you know, basic things that their body just can't fight anymore. So, um, I'm all about getting the bacteria where it needs to be and making sure that people are eating to support it.
1: Yeah. And you know, what I'm seeing a whole lot in my practice is we're seeing cancer at younger ages we're seeing more autoimmune disease. In fact, autoimmune disease is exploding. Yes, and you have to start asking why. Why is this? And we know that if there is an inflamed gut, so let's get back to the inflammation part. This leads to something called leaky gut, or if it's you're in the medical field, it's intestinal permeability. It seems to be an easier, easier thing to sort of accept than calling it leaky gut. That's more of an well, internet term.
0: Let's- be honest a leaky gut for so long has been dismissed that's not a thing I mean that's what I was taught it, that's not even a thing that's just what chiropractors call it or functional medicine but we don't believe that so now instead of saying oh we were wrong it is a thing let's call it a dip by a different name so then we don't look like we messed up
1: <laughs> yeah that's that's pretty much what it is so like I say intestinal permeability when I'm talking to you know other other doctors but if I talk to my patients I say leaky gut and we, we just explain it the let's look at the, the way that we absorb food. When you break down food, you have these cells in your intestines, which are really tight. It's called the tight junction. Mm-hmm. And if you eat a diet that's very inflammatory, uh, possibly like for instance, there's, if you have celiac disease is an easy way to think of it, because we know that that becomes very leaky. Meaning when there's inflammation happening, then your body will reach up and sample what you bring in from the outside world. So your intestines are exposed to the outside world all the time. You have control of what you put in your mouth, which means you're exposing it. So if there is something which is turning on your immune system, these cells sample it, they hand it to another cell, that cell goes, oh, this is not good. We better get rid of it. And so they start mounting this attack on it. And so that is the basis of celiac disease where it it basically forms these antibodies against something in gluten called gliadin, but the same process happens on a smaller scale whenever you eat really inflammatory foods or if you have bacterial overgrowth and so on. <clears throat> and so what ends up happening is as the body is sampling it, these this whole infl- this inflammatory cascade ends up making it so that it becomes a little bit more permeable and there's a little gap. And that gap allows white blood cells to get through and it's supposed to fight this thing, which makes total sense if you were to eat something that is going to make you sick. So you eat chicken, it's undercooked, it has salmonella. The body immediately samples it and goes, whoa, sound the alarms, that's salmonella. Send everybody out there to go attack the salmonella so it doesn't make us sick. That's what it's for problem is when you keep exposing it to small amounts, then that inflammatory thing just kind of happens at a lower level. And over time, those tight junctions that protect you start to become a little bit porous or leaky. And that's where it starts happening. It's the belief that that is the root cause of a lot of the inflammatory process and also probably why autoimmune disease starts taking place. So it comes down to that. The Inflammatory cascade with causing some leaky gut leads to all of these chronic issues that we're kind of dealing with. We're seeing it now when we do studies on people that have disease, and then you start asking them, hey, by the way, did you, or if you're talking to a spouse, did your husband or wife, did they complain of gut issues like 10 years ago? Like, yeah, it all started. They just started having gut stuff. They were told they had irritable bowel. So they developed irritable bowel at 55 years old. And at 70, they have dementia. We're starting to see that, oh, we need to stop it then to prevent this from happening. And that's sort of, well, no, it's not sort of. This will be my massively transformative goal before I die, which is to cure dementia by healing the gut. That's Mm -hmm. my goal. You just have to start early enough. Well,
0: I was going to say, so that leads to the question, can it be repaired, right? Or once you have those those porous areas in your, in your gut. Now you're just for lack of better words, you're screwed. Or are there ways to do repair work?
1: A hundred percent. And it happens quick. Your body wants to repair itself. And so once you start changing the insulting factor, whatever that is, if it's bacteria growing where it shouldn't be, if it's eating really inflammatory foods, then your body will be able to produce the exact opposite of those inflammatory chemicals and it will produce immune regulatory, meaning it will go tell the body to chill out a little bit. We got this. We're going to send other signals to calm everything down. Once it's calmed down, the body can heal. That tight junction seals back up and then it goes through a repair process. And during that period, you definitely want to make sure that the microbiome continues to heal because then it'll do all the work for you. Even if you do cheat a little bit, even if you do have whatever, you can still live your life and do everything. But if you have the right microbiome to do it, then it will always protect and send different signals like butyrate, which has been shown to tighten those junctions. And it goes throughout the entire body to do this. So 100% if any of your listeners are concerned that they've done too much damage. And I get that a lot. I had a lot of people that come to me and they feel guilty because they did, they had something happen throughout their life. Oh, I ate really bad. Oh, I had an eating disorder and I had bulimia and anorexia and things. I think I did permanent damage. That's the beauty of the gut. It's never permanent. Like you can, it heals. It, it heals quick. And so once you do that, then your body changes it becomes wanting those things, you have less of those cravings, and you continue to decrease those inflammatory processes.
0: Yeah, well, I think just even recognizing that IBS is more than just a we don't know what's wrong with you. So we're just going to chalk it up to IBS, good luck, which no disrespect to the GI doctors that we work with. But from a patient side, when they're coming to see me, that's what it feels like, you know, you're, Your colonoscopy didn't show anything and um, yeah, we're not sure because everything looks good. So yeah, yeah, I think you have IBS. Um, Now we know we have things like FODMAP diet, which people are really responding well to and they're starting to, you know, be in less pain or less symptoms, which awards them the time to start doing some other changes and start healing the gut until they can finally reintroduce those foods back in.
1: I'm trying to think of a good analogy because what I get all the time is people that come to me for second opinions and they're very frustrated because they go to a doctor, they have this big workup and the doctor says, good news, it's just IBS. And they leave the office and they're like, how is that good news? I'm miserable. My rosacea is acting up. Mm -hmm. I can't eat out. I can't wear the clothes I want to wear. So I need help with this. I'm trying to think of an analogy appropriate. Because I always want to tell patients, it's like saying to the Titanic, don't worry, it's just an iceberg. Because to the person that's that's told, it's just IBS, it's one of the most frustrating things. So I never use the term. But IBS affects, by definition, 20% of the U.S. population. Mm-hmm. And the diagnostic criteria is... Abdominal pain, relieved with defecation, lasting more than three months, and it can be diarrhea or constipation. So I always had trouble with this because if I'm going to give somebody a diagnosis and they have opposing symptoms, how can I diagnose you with something where it could be diarrhea or constipation? And the most common symptom, which is bloating, isn't even included in the diagnostic criteria. So we're missing something there by calling people irritable bowel. So even though I did research in IBS, I never label somebody irritable bowel because I feel like once I label you, then we quit looking. Mm -hmm. And if you quit looking, then you'll never get to the answer. So I try never to say that. And it's, it's a little bit frustrating because most of the time, if we don't get somebody feeling better and it's just IBS, when you keep looking, there's another reason. And if we didn't keep looking then Ultimately, they would still be labeled as IBS. Fortunately, because of the internet and because of a lot of healthcare providers, which are putting information out there, patients are taking their health in their own hands and they're seeking second opinions, third opinions, fourth opinions. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm not, uh, that whole idea that irritable bowel syndrome is a label is, I hate doing that. I, I, I unlabel most of the people that come into my office and say they have irritable bowel.
0: Right. But, you know, also educating them that left unchecked and just like chalking it up to, oh, it's just IBS deal with it. Like you said, down the road, this is, this is the the canary in the the minehouse, right? It's, you know, how many people that come to me for autoimmune and saying like, I just don't feel right, but all my tests keep coming back normal. So I guess it's in my head. And then 10 years later, oh, guess what? I have Hashimoto's. I have Um, rheumatoid arthritis I have lupus and it's like so they knew like these people know intrinsically there's something not right but the diagnostic tests that we have just aren't picking up on it quite yet and so maybe the gut is the the first part that we look at
1: I think the conversation should be you know hey Adrian we just did your colonoscopy your endoscopy it's totally normal good news it's just IBS so nothing to worry about That being said, there's a really high likelihood that 10, 15, 20 years from now, you have a higher risk of dementia. You have a higher risk of cardiac disease. You have a, I'm going to call it like sevenfold increased risk of autoimmune issues, but it's just IBS. Don't worry. You're just at risk for all this stuff. If we don't do this, it's very weird to think about that. It's very weird to say, don't worry, it's just IBS, but we know that gut issues really are the first warning sign that this could lead to all these other chronic illnesses. And I don't know why we're not talking about that more, at least in my societies.
0: Right. So I want to just touch on one more thing um, real quick is you mentioned the gut brain axis. So can you explain a little bit more what that means? Because I think, and again, people are talking about these words, but we don't necessarily understand it.
1: So the gut and the brain are completely connected in fact the gut brain and immune system think of it like a triangle where they're constantly talking to each other the gut talks to the brain the gut talks to the immune system the immune system talks to the gut the immune system talks to the brain the brain talks to both so it's this highway forming this triangle In a physiologic standpoint, it's really interesting because we have what's called the enteric nervous system or your gut has its own nervous system. And it has the nerves that are directly touching nerves that go straight to the brain. So it's a direct connection, the enteric nervous system to the central nervous system. And we even know the cells and the distance between them and the different things that create this so when there's inflammation in the gut cell called a mast cell releases different things like histamine and a few other things that turn the enteric nervous system or the nerves in the gut to send a signal to the brain that something's wrong and when that goes up then the brain is going okay we've got something happening here so there's a direct communication. That uh, through various nerves, most people are familiar with the one called the vagus nerve, where the vagus nerve goes up and it's a nerve that comes from the, basically from the brain all the way through the gut. But there's actually some other nerves that we're now discovering. That's how intricate it is. And when there's inflammation in the gut, by default, the brain gets turned on. And now we realize that whole leaky gut thing that I was telling you about, We now know that those same inflammatory cytokines or those same inflammation markers actually can create minor holes in the blood-brain barrier. One of the things that can happen is, like, for instance, if you have chronic bacterial exposure and your body gets rid of the bacteria, what's left of a dead bacteria is the shell of it, the protein on the outside. Those proteins can basically be brought in through a leaky gut and then they can circulate through your body and then they can slip through a leaky brain or a permeable blood brain barrier. And then those turn on the immune system in the brain, specifically these cells called microglial cells. But what they do is they're not as complex of an immune fighting thing as we have in the gut. They do one thing, something breaks through, I must kill it. So they run over and they kill it. And then what happens is that creates local inflammation in the brain. When that happens in the short term, we know that there are memory issues. There are, we call it, you know, basically any type of where people feel that they have a brain fog or anything like that, that is a sign that your gut is now affecting your brain. And then over time, that can lead to beta amyloid protein deposition, that can lead to permanent scarring, that can lead to fibrosis, that can actually lead to neurons not being able to communicate with each other as well. So the gut-brain access is intricately tied together. So you can have a leaky gut and you can have a leaky brain over time. It all comes down to that inflammation. That's The that's one aspect. That's the direct connection to it. But then we now realize that we need certain gut metabolites to make certain neurotransmitters. So for instance, from a nutrition standpoint, we know that tryptophan gets controlled through an enzyme that gets converted to serotonin. And about 90% of the serotonin in the body is produced in the gut. And we know that serotonin is really important in the brain. It's a neurotransmitter. We know that glutamate gets converted to a neurotransmitter called GABA. GABA is the prime inhibitory neurotransmitter. And we also know that you can make dopamine also through L-tyrosine. So these amino acids that we take in are controlled by bacterial metabolites and bacteria directly making these neurotransmitters that allow your brain to be healthy. So it sounds really complex, but think of it this way. We now know that if you don't have enough GABA, that's associated with anxiety. It's associated with ADHD. We know if you don't have enough norepinephrine, that is also associated with uh, ADHD. And so all these kids that are being diagnosed and being put on drugs, I get that the drugs might help in the short term. What's happening in the long term? Should we be taking a step back and go, are you eating a proper diet? Do you have the right microbiome to produce these neurotransmitters? So you have this direct gut brain effect, and then you have this indirect one where you need a healthy gut and healthy microbiome to produce the neurotransmitters that actually do this. So your mood could be dependent on your gut depression, um, lack of will, you know, if you don't have enough dopamine, you have no desire to do anything. So there's a direct and an indirect, which are constantly going on the whole time. And if you're not eating the right nutrients to allow this to happen, then that can deplete those neurotransmitters as well.
0: Right. So when I'm telling people to eat more whole foods, like, it goes beyond just because I'm trying to get the world to eat more fruits and vegetables and whole foods. Like there is this whole complex system dependent on our choices. And I don't know if people would be as flippant, you know, with their, with their food choices, knowing the impact. But like you said, the body is an amazing vessel designed to heal itself. So it, it puts up with a lot before it, it starts to show signs like, Hey, I'm struggling.
1: it's interesting that mother nature seems to always be able to do it better than mm-hmm. what we try to do. So when there's a drug that's developed, they have to get a patent on it. They have to do things and to get a patent, it has to be unique and all these other, you know, things associated with it. People started getting depressed. And so now we're immediately putting people on SSRIs, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. That what that does is that blocks when serotonin is released, it blocks The thing that allows it to be reabsorbed. So it sits around in this, basically the two neurons have more serotonin to deal with, but all you're doing is you're not producing more serotonin. You're preventing it from going back in where the reality is it needs to go in, help, come back, go in, help, come back. Nobody really ever taught me when I was in medical school that if, because all these drugs were coming out at the time, that Should we just be blocking this reuptake inhibitor? Why don't we set up an environment where your body can produce sufficient amounts so that you don't have to do this? And then maybe we can eat our way out of depression as opposed to just trying to give a drug. So,
0: yeah, well, and like you said, it's, it's an emerging, it's a constantly changing science. So hopefully with more information, we can do better. We can, we can continue to ask better questions and really figure this out. Um, It's just who will be profitable if we, if we're doing it all through our, our farm and not, and not big medicine. So. Are you saying
1: our pharmacy F-A-R-M-A or is this pharmacy?
0: (laughs) Right. We got to make sure, you know, that's the, that's the other part. I mean, there's always legal things around it, but you know, I just, Our tagline at our business is eat real food, get real results. Because a lot of times people will come to us and they're like, so you're going to put me on some supplements. I'm like, no, no. I mean, I will look to see where there's deficiencies, but my goal is to get you to, you know, fix whatever's going on with food from the grocery store. Now that doesn't mean we're going to be shopping in every aisle, but you know, if we can, empower you to make these better decisions with resources you have at your disposal without just dumping a whole bunch of supplements into your body, I'm always going to be choosing that first. Um,
1: I saw a TED Talk recently, It's a little bit older TED Talk, a few years old, where a researcher was showing uh, the data that she had where they were taking people that were diagnosed with clinical depression or ADHD, and they were kids, actually, and they were giving them what she called micronutrients, but really what it was was macronutrients, which was a lot of nutrients, making sure that the the iron is replete, the the vitamin D, all these things that we're supposed to have. And the results were markedly better and long-term much more effective than the drugs that were being used. So that essentially was micronutrient versus drugs. And it's kind of shocking because it was very, very effective and would be, you know, much easier on the economic status of a country to do that as opposed to just always use drugs. And the data exists, I'll come back to it. You start looking for studies, they actually exist that prove all of this. So it's a little bit sad that we're not talking more about that aspect.
0: Yeah, well, Dr. Brown, I have to tell you that I put out um, on our social media pages that I was going to be interviewing Um, a GI doctor. And I will tell you, I had so many responses of can you please ask this question? Can you please ask this question? So I thought we would play a little game where it's kind of like a rapid fire question and answer period if you're up for it. Um, These are some of the top questions that I got from my clients and from people that just want to know more. So I've I'm curious if you're if you're up for it. You, you have no clue what the questions are. So. I have no
1: clue. I'm up for it. I will try my best. If I don't know it, you know what? Here's what we'll do. If I don't know it, you and I hook up again, and I'll find somebody that does know it, and then we'll get back to your clients. All
0: right. Excellent. All right. So question number one, how close are we to finding a cure for Crohn's?
1: Ooh, cure for Crohn's. A lot of the beauty of inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's and colitis, these are really intense researchers. And there's lots in this particular case, there's drugs coming out all the time, even though we're talking whole food and everything. It is fascinating to know that every class of drug gets closer and closer to a specific process. And what I mean by that is we have biologics. We've got these different jack inhibitors. we got all these new drugs that are just coming out. That coupled with a genetic screen where we can start looking at the genes of people and then look at their epigenetic phenomenon. Maybe we can tailor a drug which essentially will be for you, Adrian, your Crohn's drug should be this, or your Crohn's regimen should be this, as opposed to, let's try this for two months, let's try this for two months, let's try this and see what happens. So I don't think that we're real close to a cure yet, but the treatments are improving so fast in this space, so fast that the doctors are having trouble keeping up with it. If I go to an IBD meeting, uh, it's really, really, really cool, because contrary to what I've been saying before, where the doctor's Uh, you know, are a little slow to adapt to things. In that particular space, people are moving really fast. And I was around treating Crohn's people where all we had was some really simple drugs that caused a lot of side effects. And then the first biologic came out, which was Remicade. And these people, there was a cutoff. There was people that had 10 surgeries before that. And then Remicade came out and they didn't have another surgery after that. So a cure to Crohn's, I don't know quite where we're going with that. There are lots of studies looking at fecal microbial transplants to change the microbiome, all those things. I do have a lot of success with my IBD people. When I say IBD, I mean Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. They're both autoimmune diseases that attack the gut. Crohn's can attack anywhere from the mouth to the anus. It can be really devastating. A lot of times it shows up in children and it's really tough to be a parent and see a child go through something like this so I think that as we continue to evolve there's so much science going on in that space that we're learning how to control it way better than we did 20 years ago I have a lot of success using whole foods with my Crohn's patients I have a lot of success with the polyphenols that have been shown to decrease there's all these inflammatory markers that go up in Crohn's, TNF alpha, NF kappa beta, and all these acronyms that sound super sciency, but it all comes down to that same thing that we're talking about. If we can stop the inflammation, then we can actually slow down the progression of the disease itself. So the timeline, I'm not sure, but whoever asked that, if you have Crohn's, hang in there because there's so much going on with it. And it's really exciting. And there's some really smart, kind people that are doing this for the right reason. In that particular space, it's, it seems to be a passion for the people that are involved with it. Great.
0: All right. Apple cider vinegar for reflux. Yes or
1: no? (laughs) Okay. So.
0: Are these I'm are, person. I guess, are not
1: quick answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just me. That's probably not quick answers because I would say, you know, is there a cure for Crohn's? No. Apple cider vinegar? No. <laughs> but there's there's more to it. Okay. So apple cider vinegar for reflux. You are looking at somebody who has had acid reflux for 30 years. I have a three centimeter hiatal hernia. I have been on PPIs. My, um, my personal quest has been to find a natural treatment for apple for uh, acid reflux and there's i think i'm really close to it by the way so but when you look at apple cider vinegar the data does not support that it's effective for acid reflux the data is really good for insulin resistance or glycemic control glucose control and it's really good for weight loss looking at the data and you can go to a website called examine.com and look at this and you can see what studies have been done personally, and I would say almost all my patients that have acid reflux, by the time they come to a gastroenterologist, they've sort of failed most of the things for acid reflux. Almost everybody has at least tried apple cider vinegar and they still come. That being said, I do have friends that when they get occasional heartburn and they take apple cider vinegar, it goes away. It didn't work on me. And the data says that it doesn't work, but if it works for you, go ahead and do it just remember that the acidity can sometimes mess with the enamel on your teeth and things. So.
0: Yep. Make sure you're diluting it and you're not doing it straight. All right. Yes or no to probiotics.
1: Ooh. So I'm biased on this because probiotics in general have not been shown to be effective after six months in all large clinical trials. And this is, so that's what the data says. And this is a hot topic for people that are very passionate about it. If a probiotic is working for you, that's awesome. Keep doing it. My problem with the probiotic industry in itself is that there's tons of probiotics. It's become a bit of a marketing thing. They just keep doing more colony forming units. It's like, oh, well, mine had 5 billion. Oh, look, this one has 10 billion. There is a prescription probiotic called VSL number three. And this one's very expensive. They sell it to doctors. And I was talking to the rep and it's so powerful. They told me that you have to keep it in the refrigerator. I have to keep it in in the refrigerator. So if it can't survive room temperature, can you explain to me how it will survive 98.4 degrees in an acidic environment plus pancreatic juices? So that's sort of my thing is that I think that there's a lot of marketing with it. And so I tell all my patients, if it's helping you stick with it, that's fantastic. I'm more of a fan of spore-based biotics, specifically spore biotics, Bacillus subtilis, Bacillus coagulans, and Bacillus clausii. We actually have a product called Atrantil Pro that we worked with the um, scientists at Microbiome Labs who produce a product called Megaspore, and they they put together a proprietary blend of three spore-based biotics that have an enzyme called tannase, which helps break down one ingredient in our product called Cabracho Colorado. So we know that the spores, once they survive all the way to the ileum, which is right before the colon, there's a chemical signal that turns them on and then they wake up. And if they have food around for them, which typically they like these polyphenols, then they wake up, they send signals to other bacteria, and they tell the bad bacteria to go and try and improve the microbial diversity. So much so that a new drug has just come out that is oral fecomicrobial transplant. And I can get into the politics of this, but basically there was a company that stuck a flag on the space of fecomicrobial transplant. And if I keep saying that, nobody knows what it is. It's exactly what you're thinking. You take poop from somebody and you put it in somebody else. It's just that simple. So now it's considered a drug. And now when they came to me and they asked, uh, they said, oh, but this one is uh, very different than the other one. And they had this fancy name to it. And I said, well, what is it? They're like, well, we took stool from humans and we isolated this class of bacteria called firmicutes or firmicutes or however you want to say it. I've heard it many different ways. And then we put them under duress and they became spores. And then we take those spores and you swallow them. And that helps prevent C. diff, this infection that you can get in your colon. And in our studies, it showed that when you have recurrent C. diff, if you do two doses of this, two, four capsule doses that we had an 88% non-recurrence rate, it sounds fantastic. But I'm like, whoa, wait a minute you rate them spores from humans. There's only two type of bacteria that can form spores in that class. And the one that I'm familiar with that is non-pathogenic, meaning it won't cause disease are these ones that I'm telling you, these bacillus species. The problem is, is that as a prescription, it's like $7,500 for two doses, two, four capsule oh, doses. Goodness. So, The pharma industry is moving towards spore-based biotics, if that says anything there. So probiotics, if they work for you, awesome, keep doing it. If they don't, consider taking a spore-based. And then regarding probiotics, I love fermented foods. I love fermented foods, especially because that's how mother nature wanted it. If you have kimchi or if you have sauerkraut, you've got a plant shell with insoluble fiber and polyphenols housing these bacteria that's the vehicle that takes it down so i'm a huge fan of fermented foods me too
0: um best
1: food for gallbladder health oh (laughs) this one i'm gonna have to i'm I'm gonna say a pass worst food would be just lots of fat if you're (laughs) gonna eat fat and you hurt so i don't really have the best food for gallbladder health
0: all right um Is it safe for people with a history of gastritis and ulcers to take Advil occasionally?
1: Short answer, yes. But if you had the ulcer and you figured out why, so was the ulcer caused by Advil in the first place or any of those NSAIDs? Was it caused by bacteria? What was the reason for the ulcer? And I say the ulcer because gastritis in itself is kind of a term that we use all the time when we see non-specific inflammation in the stomach and it's more of a pathologic term meaning that the pathologist reads the stomach biopsy and says that so gastritis sometimes is the thing that people hang their hat on but the underlying cause of your discomfort could be acid reflux it could be bile it could be other things like that so it is okay to take it occasionally not a big fan of the whole class of those drugs in general because it does other things, can also mess with your kidneys and so on, so. Awesome. Uh,
0: What are your thoughts on yeast overgrowth and overuse of antibiotics?
1: Oh, I'll start with the overuse of antibiotics. Absolutely hate that. That just destroys your microbiome. I mean, at at all costs, try to avoid antibiotics. If necessary, you need them. And that's where I'm going to say, well, make sure that you're taking a spore-based biotic with that while you're taking it and make sure that you're taking in a lot of polyphenols so that you can keep your microbiome healthy. So not a fan of antibiotics and clearly overused a ton. And it could be one of the reasons why we're seeing so many kids with different problems, including the neurologic things that we talked about earlier, because Mm -hmm. we are so ready to give that. And the yeast overgrowth, this is an interesting thing because for years and years, when the, we'll just say the chiropractors again, when the chiropractors were saying leaky gut and we're like, that doesn't exist they've been saying candida the whole time. And I say candida because in when I did my um, infectious disease, we always pronounced it candida. And I just say that because uh, whenever I say candida people, but so let's just candida. My thing about that from a logical standpoint, when you have a yeast, a yeast is a decomposing organism, meaning it breaks down an organism and traditionally does not produce significant gas. When I was in training before we had a lot of AIDS treatment and people with bad immunocompromised, or if they did not have a good immune system due to chemotherapy, I could take an endoscope or a camera and look in their esophagus and their whole esophagus and stomach completely coated with yeast, with candida, completely coated their gi symptoms were very little so i was always like when that, when people were talking about this i'm like oh people are saying that you have too much you have too much candida and that's why you have bloating but when i'm looking at people that are just visually it's just coded they're not coming with bloating in fact they're they have some swallowing trouble but that's about it but that being said now we know that when there's cultures with people that have bacterial overgrowth Um, Dr. Satish Rao out of Georgia, he cultured and found high levels of yeast in some of these people. So he called it, you know, he called it fungal overgrowth and, or small intestinal fungal overgrowth. So it just got me thinking, well, if it's a decomposing organism and you have a lot of yeast, when you eat, it'll break it down, but it'll release carbons. And then those carbons can actually be used by bacteria to produce methane. And so initially I was, that doesn't exist. And then I'm like, oh, but if you do have it, then you can have all these gastrointestinal symptoms because they're living with bacteria, giving the bacteria some fuel, some fuel. So when people have really resistant gut issues, I have used antifungals to try and get rid of it and have had some success. So kind of full circle, just my thought process was a little bit different as to why I'm doing it.
0: Got it. I followed you. I was was Uh, good. (laughs) All right. I'll just pick one more question for the sake of time. Um, And it's a real simple one. So this, this will be real easy for you. In terms of my perimenopausal women. All right. um, How do hormones affect the gut?
1: We know that hormones completely affect motility. So we see this all the time. I mean, if you've, if you, um, whenever a young woman's going to recycle. I have all these patients that'll be like, I'm like, do you have any gut issues? They're like, you know, the only time I'm regular is when I'm about ready to have my period. And so that really does tell me that these hormones do affect motility and it definitely does. And so as you get into that perimenopausal phase, the nuance of the hormones affecting motility can really, can really do that. And so you can have mostly related to What I have seen, which is more colonic inertia, meaning that you get more constipation associated with this. Now, regarding hormone replacement, that's not my field, but it does seem to be that when people, when my patients go and they have some sort of perimenopausal hormone replacement of some sort, that their gut issues tend to lighten up also. So I'm not sure of the exact mechanism. I do know that it plays a role with the motility, and it does seem to improve when the hormones are kind of leveled out a little bit.
0: Okay. Sorry. I realized there was one more that somebody wrote in. Um, What is your best tip for IBS mixed?
1: Oh, IBS mixed. Yeah. My best tip is to realize that you don't have IBS. It's probably something else, (laughs) but yeah. So one of the things about IBS mixed that I find a whole lot is, and even then they get labeled IBS mixed, but if I have somebody that has periods of constipation and then they'll just have explosive diarrhea, the thing that gets missed so much is that if you have constipation and you don't even realize it. So think of it this way. If your body gets used to the fact that you have this stool burden, then you don't have the signals telling you. So a simple way to think of it is when we wake up, if people wake up and they have coffee and they drink their coffee, then there's something called the gastrocolic reflex, where the stomach is sending a signal to the colon says, Hey, we're starting our day. Maybe we should evacuate and empty our bowels. But so many people are in a hurry and they're commuting and they drink their coffee and that reflux or or that reflux kicks in. It can be suppressed and you can actually train your brain to ignore that signal. Now think of that over a long period of time. You can actually train your brain to ignore that your rectum is being distended where normally that would tell you, I need to go to the bathroom. And when that happens over a period of time, your colon overrides the brain's in perception and starts producing a ton of fluid to try and get it out. And we call this overflow diarrhea, where basically your colon is driving fluid into the lumen in the hopes of moving the stool. But if it's really hard, then it just flows over. And then you end up having these like explosive diarrhea. You actually have accidents. You can have leakage and all these things. And it's counterintuitive. Because then people start taking emodium and they become more constipated. And it's classic in like assisted living facilities where if a doctor swings by once a week and, you know, see some people and they're like, oh, well, I, I soiled my bed last night. Oh, well, let's put you on some, some emodium so that you don't do that where it's counterintuitive. So a lot of the IBS mixed that I see, I actually just treat the constipation and the diarrhea part gets better for those reasons.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Dr. Brown, thank you so much. This has been been so informative. I know I learned a lot. I know my listeners are going to learn a ton and they're just going to be so excited to have some of these questions answered. So thank you so much for your time. Um, if people want to know more about you, uh, go ahead and tell us about your your podcast. Um, now we're in Pennsylvania, so we're not close um, geographically, but how can we learn more about the work that you're doing?
1: So on Instagram, if anybody has any questions, just go to at gut gut check project. That's our Instagram. That's um, our Facebook. Also, Uh, we got a lot of the information on our product website as well. Atranteel.com, A-T-R-A-N-T-I-L.com. And for healthcare practitioners, we have the product, which is AtronTil Pro, which is for healthcare practitioners only. And that's the one that has the spore-based biotics. So it's probably the easiest way is to do that. Um, from a medical standpoint, KennethBrownMD.com is where we have a lot of just information about basic gastroenterology stuff. If any of your clients have questions about that, fantastic.
0: So we always end each episode with a recipe. So if I have a guest on, I ask you to share uh, maybe something that's a go-to or a, a one of your favorite breakfast ideas. Whatever you have, obviously, you know, something to support the healthy gut. Um, so, so not your favorite Chick-fil-A recipe or your favorite <laughs> McDonald's recipe. Um, but do you have something that maybe other, uh, some of our listeners would actually um, would enjoy trying as well?
1: I do. I, I thought about this uh, because I know that you emailed and you said, you know, it'd be nice if you had a recipe and something that I've had some fun with. One of the things that I have trouble doing I do intermittent fasting, so sometimes it's hard to get enough protein. I'm at the stage of my life where I'm trying to make sure that I do not have something called sarcopenia, which is loss of muscle mass. So one of the key things there is sufficient protein. And I I had um, a friend do this for me, and I absolutely love it. It's She got a silicon cupcake thing, you know, like cupcakes. It has a dozen cupcakes in it. But it's like one of those silicon, it's a silicon baking cupcake thingy. I don't know what the actual word is.
0: Baking pan?
1: (laughs) Yeah, baking pan. And she took 12 eggs, a dozen eggs, eight ounces of cream cheese, because it really brings some really cool consistency to it, 100 grams of grass-fed protein isolate, and 25 grams of creatine and two avocados, and mixed it all up and then poured it in each one of those 12 containers, baked it, and that ended up becoming my portable egg bites that I could take with me. I could freeze them. I put them in individual bags and I would just throw a couple, take a couple with me to work. And that ends up being, um, you know, 12 servings. You're going to have 202 calories per each one. You'll have 16 grams of protein per egg bite, and you're going to get 17 grams of healthy fat with it. And so it's super easy. You just mix it up, pour it in, bake it, pull it out, pop them out, put them in Ziplocs. And now you've got your protein to go for the day. So I would do two of those, which I would get 32 grams of protein and at least kind of kickstart and whenever, if I was going to, you know, just have it on me. And so it's sort of my go-to, especially in my job where we have lots of drug reps that will just bring a full catered crap lunch but if you're really hungry sometimes you'll break down and do that I've always got these in the freezer and I'm like before I dip it like I'm a huge fan of Asian food like Thai food and I wore a continuous glucose monitor one time and ate my favorite Thai food and just watched my blood sugar spike and I went uh oh this is something that I thought was healthy for me but the reality is there's a lot of hidden sugar so by having protein doesn't get converted to fat very easy, and it keeps you very full. So getting a sufficient protein is like a a fat loss thing. So this is my on the go protein bites, super easy. Not don't have to overthink it. And then of course, if you want to get fancy with it, you can throw in other stuff like whatever you know, some some
0: like vegetables,
1: like vegetables or vegetables or lean proteins or whatever else. But I just it's just I can make this recipe, so I, I like that.
0: So you're baking it at like 350 for about 20 minutes or so?
1: That's a great question. How much you bake it for? I got the chef <laughs> right here. 350? How long? 350, 20 minutes. Yep, you nailed it.
0: There we go. Um, and I know a lot of people are actually stirring cottage cheese now into their eggs when they make yeah. an egg cup instead of a cream cheese. So you always have that option if you're yeah. looking for a lot of protein um as well. So fantastic. My chef-
1: my chef over here is holding up a sign that says everyone should learn to make their own fermented foods: sourdough, sauerkraut, yogurt. So mm-hmm. we um, I I we rent space out of her house. This is where the studio is, and so she gets to she gets to play chef and try stuff on us, on me and Eric. So oh,
0: I love it. I love it. Well, Dr. Brown, thank you again for your time. Uh, we are just so appreciative of of everything that you taught us today, and uh, we just again, very thankful. So yeah, right on.
1: And once again, please just just go to Instagram and direct message or however it's done. And you know, we'll we'll go ahead and answer those.
0: All right. Sounds good. All right, guys, that's what we have for you today. Uh, As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Neurosheet repeat podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please rate review and share with others so we can reach and help more people. For more information about nutrition, how to work with a dietitian, or about any of our programs, visit our website at bodymetricshealth.com. You can also find us on socials. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Bodymetrics Health. The book Nourish Eat Repeat is available on our website and Amazon in both paperback and ebook versions. Once again, I'm Adrienne Delgado, and I'll see you next week.